This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With free event and show insurance for members and clubs, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us once more. We are the podcast that thinks outside the toolbox. We hope you're catching each and every show and telling your friends about us. We don't want to take up too much of your hobby time, just enough to amuse and inspire you. This time out, we're time traveling. Jim will be throwing the Johnson bar into reverse as he and guest Keith Wills look back over a century of model railroading. Trevor, on the other hand, is notch eight to the future as he and his guest Chris Howard of Railflyer Prototype models talks about an innovative way of producing locomotive models that mimic prototype construction. Chris's idea may be a new model for other hobby manufacturers to follow in the future. That'll be a little later in the show. But first, one of my more enjoyable train outings last year was a visit to the National Toy Train Museum in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful museum with its huge collection of toy trains artfully displayed and interpreted. And even if you think you're not into tin plate, you'd be a tough nut indeed if you're not enchanted by what you see. I suspect the older we get, the more the past becomes important to us. Nostalgia, of course, plays a large part, but beyond that, many of us simply develop an interest in tracking history. Now, personally, I don't think we can appreciate how far the hobby of model railroading has come without first knowing where it came from. Those lumbering, cast-iron, clockwork, or electric trains of our grandfathers or great-grandfathers' day may seem crude now, but back in their day, they were just as exciting as any of our current DCC-powered miniature marvels. And I just plain like looking at 50- or 100-year-old toys. It's no wonder I devour every one of Keith Will's articles. Keith writes the monthly Collector Consist column for Railroad Model Craftsman. He's been doing it for years and still keeps coming up with fresh material to inform us and amuse us. Keith Wills is with us now. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. Now, I just want to say, you probably hear this a lot, but this is true. Yours is one of the very first columns I head for with each new issue of RMC. I like reading about the old stuff. A lot of people say that. And I've already alluded to this in my introduction, but what are your thoughts on the importance of knowing the history of toy and scale trains and their manufacturers? Well, part of it is the fact that we collect different things. We collect, you mentioned cast iron and stamp steel and lithograph models and all that. But we also collect history. We are collecting the history of past technologies, the past technologies of the manufacture of the trains and the past technologies of railroads that no longer exist, like steam locomotives, a lot of the electric prototypes that have disappeared. So in a sense, when we have an interest in these old trains, we're also collecting technical history. Do you think current day modelers are missing something if they only live the hobby in the present? It depends. I've always had an interest in history and there have been, I mean, there were areas in Manhattan where I used to go with my father and as later as a teen that fed that interest in history in general, you know, with the Civil War, Revolutionary War, whatever. And to me, how can we understand where we are today if we don't know the past from whence we came? You know, it's something that I believe that we, we should understand our roots as much as, as much as we understand our roots of anything where we come from. I guess it's a function of age, isn't it? What would be old to you and me would be terribly ancient to some of the younger practitioners <laughs> in the hobby. Yes, but I look, I look back even earlier. It was only really after I started writing in 1982 that I began to realize and learn about really the old German marks. You know, I mean, going back to the 1890s, you know, Markland, Bob, Bing, Corette, 
You've amazed me with your columns, Keith, because uh, I didn't realize how sophisticated these 100-plus-year-old toys were in their day. Well, wait till you see one coming up. Uh, I have a, a column on proto-operation in the sense that, of course, you can only do it with live steam and clockwork but uh, and in the large gauges, but you could buy modular track that had uh, double-slip switches and uh, cross crossovers, left and right-hand crossovers, uh, single and double crossings. I mean, it was possible to do wise parallel switches, things that in the 1930s, scale modelers would have terrible time trying to replicate by hand because of all the electrical problems, you know, connected with shorts and everything else. Whereas with live steam and clockwork, you didn't have to do it. You had this wonderful two-rail track system that you could literally make scale layouts, scale operation layouts. Well, the operation of clockwork locomotives was really quite sophisticated. I think the Hornby trains, they were making quite large and sophisticated-looking clockwork trains right into the 50s, were they not? I remember my Meccano magazines. There was Hornby Dublot, which was the electric, and then the Hornby trains, they they usually featured some wind-up train or something like that. Yeah, Hornby was pretty much wind-up after the war. They made clockwork and electric before the war, from Mm -hmm. really from World War I. But the large gauges were for people with money, people with large houses where they could, you know, have a seven or eight foot or ten foot diameter track in their home. The larger gauges went out after World War One because houses were being built smaller. There wasn't the room for the large gauges. They were very expensive, not affordable. And really, gauge one lasted into the 1930s, and after that, it was strictly O gauge, H O double O. Kind of vanished Later, with the after the war, uh, TT and Z and N. Now, you said Z. I'm talking to you in Plattsburgh, New York. Is that a Canadian artifact? No. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Montreal for 25 years, so I tend to do things from A to Z, and I cross my sevens. <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> Well, there's some serendipity involved in our little chat here, Keith, because when I lined this chat up, I didn't realize that you were approaching your 30th anniversary uh, writing for RMC. Yeah. And it's actually this month, isn't it? The month of February. That's February right. February yeah. RMC, uh, you, you mark your 30th anniversary. Yeah. Did you have any idea you'd be doing it that long? I figured I had 12 columns in there, and I'm ready. I have columns past 2013. So I guess the days of panic about what you'll write about next have gone? Oh, long gone. <laughs> I, I used to have, I tried to have three or four in advance, and it was a year in advance, and then two years in advance. Sometimes I could go for a year without writing a thing, you know, because I had so much ahead. And it's it's a compulsion. It really is. I mean, I don't choose the subjects. The subjects choose me. Well, the nice thing about the subject, of course, is it's not really time-sensitive, isn't it? You, you, you can write that far in advance. Yeah, and I, I try and have a balance between scale, template, toy, and sometimes commentary. How did it all start? <laughs> well, with a magazine, a collector concept started in, I think, 81, October 81, and the idea being that different readers would contribute articles, and nobody contributed. So I wrote to Bill Schaumburg, and I said a couple of ideas outlined, and he said, write them up, we'll print them. So I sent, I wrote four right away and sent them down, and he said, I hope I'm not putting any pressure on you to supply a monthly column. I said, no, not at all. <laughs> And I started writing, but the interest in old toy trains goes back to when I was a boy in the 40s and the 50s. There was a a hobby shop down in Lower Manhattan, Hobbyland, on Park Row, which was near City Hall. And it was filled with, this is, we're talking mid to late 40s, filled with 
pre-war 1920s Lionel on the wall shelves and a tabletop, very much like a, a terminal with all these sightings coming out, of, main lines coming out of the station, filled with more 1930s trains. And that fascinated me because the dull colors didn't excite me. But then there was the Lionel showroom. Mm-hmm. Inside, once you got past the introductory lobby, there was a wonderful, wonderful museum display of everything from that first model to everything right up to 1942. And, you know, there was, there was the Hudson and the scale cars, the M10,000, the Hiawatha, the, the Boston Main Flying Yankee, and all the others of the old double O stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating. When you, when you got into the showroom, of course, you had all the new trains along the walls, but they had display cases with the things that were no longer in manufacture going back to the 20s and 30s. And that always fascinated me. So, I mean, there, and there was a place on Long Island, Lindbrook, we used to go to called House of Mulroney, and they sold trains, contemporary and, they, and old stuff, and they had display windows, which you could see from the outside, and they had all sorts of old Lionel, the red Lionel Commodore Vanderbilt, and enough to, <laughs> enough to die for. <laughs> Heady times indeed, Keith. How many of the big names of 90 or 100 years ago are still with us now? You mentioned well, Lionel, I suppose. You have Martin. Lionel, American Flyer, which is made by Lionel. You have Hornby, you have German, you still have Tricks, you still have... Marklin, I guess. Is Marklin You have Marklin, yeah. yes. And funnily enough, Marklin was bought up by somebody else. <laughs> so Fleischmann is another one, oh, yeah. uh, Lima... But those, those were never really big names in the United States. Tricks made it for a while after the war. Mm-hmm. But that was very toy-like because it's three-rail HO. Am I correct in reading in one of your columns an early electric train set ran 110 volts through the rails? You would ask, but I really <laughs> don't recall. I know that... I should have gone back through my back issues. I seem to recall reading that somewhere. Well, <laughs> it's quite possible. I remember writing about prototype electric trains no. where the power was in the rails. And God forbid that you oh. should, you know, uh, touch it across... Well, yeah. In the street. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I hope not too many people died playing with those. I'm, I'm curious as to why so many of the locomotives and cars back then were so truncated. Expense. That's it, huh? Longer Part cost of it. I mean, if you, could, if you could lithograph something and grind it out in the hundreds and thousands and stamp it and tab it together or, as they were doing in Europe, uh, soldering for a while, it's, you know, it's, it's a mass market. And scale was never mass market in the uh, teens and the 20s and the 30s. I mean, to have Barney and Mantua making stuff, it was, they were still almost cottage industries. So, I mean, for Lionel to make scale models, I mean, they were made in Italy, designed in Italy, made in the U.S. Didn't know that. And they had the money behind them to produce them. But, you know, to make larger, you know, scale like models, people didn't have the space. Mm-hmm. Of all the toy trains you've written about over the years, if you're told you could have only one set for the mantelpiece, what would it be? Lionel, uh, Hudson, and scale cars, 1937, 1940. Okay, and for someone wanting to ease into the hobby uh, of uh, collecting toy trains, any advice? Well, there are some small marks like Hoge, the Hoagie. They say Hoagie, H-O-G-E, but it's pronounced Hoagie. Hoffner, because they were not expensive to begin with. I don't believe that ter- Hoffner isn't terribly expensive to buy today. Some people specialize in, they only buy Lionel Scout cars. Okay. So it might be only Lionel boxcars or Lionel cabooses or whatever, and they start a collection that way because it's, mm-hmm. it's inexpensive to begin with. And, you know, as your taste and money grows, you can go on from there. Is Mark's a good dark horse mark out there that's overlooked? It doesn't kind of get the respect that Lionel or uh, Flight. Uh, well, if you uh, Greenberg published two volumes 
on very excellent volumes on Marx from the early days, really up until they, they closed. And some of those, you know, I had a set that was $36 in Sears Roebuck, and about five or six years ago, it's worth 1000 Whoa. Okay. Well, hang on to mine. <laughs> <laughs> Plus the fact yeah. that, you know, Marx has been recycled. K-Line re- reproduced. Yes some of the ang- the uh, diesels and the cars. Uh, and I don't know whether they're still doing that. They today. did the 333 Pacific, as I recall, too. Yeah, That, yeah, yeah and the, the, Alco, uh, S- okay. the Alco S1, I think it was. Well, good like. stuff. Well, lots out there for anybody that really wants to get into the hobby of train collecting. I'm afraid we're running out of time here, Keith. I'm just wishing you many more years. Congratulations on hitting the 30-year mark. I, I wish you Thank many you. more years of writing for RMC. Thank you. Keith Wells, thanks for being with us today on the Model well, Railway Show. Thank you for asking me. That's really great. I think we should congratulate Keith again just for doing that column for 30 years. That's quite an accomplishment. And it sounds like he doesn't have to work hard at it, which makes me somewhat resent him. You're supposed to struggle with these, aren't you? He's having too much fun. Well, there's a saying, you know, that if you're a writer, you look at a blank piece of paper until the drops of blood form (laughs) on your forehead. So, yes, good for Keith. Now, you mentioned off the top of that the National Toy Train Museum, and you mentioned that you visited that. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, if you get down to Strasbourg, obviously the big attraction is the Strasburg Railroad and the Pennsylvania Railroad Museums right across the road. I was pressed for a time. I almost didn't go to this museum. A buddy who was with me, who isn't into trains, said, it sounds like fun. And we went and we probably spent two or three hours there. And wow. it's really, a, a, it's a, I had a fun time. You know, I, I like old toys. And, you do. You yeah. still have your first train, don't you? Yeah. Well, actually, I have a replica or at least a replacement for my first train because I sold it in my teens. But I wasn't high end. My first train was a Mark set. And I went looking for it at a flea market in a fit of nostalgia. And I, I found an old one that had been sitting around for about 40 years and put a little oil on it. And it just ran like a champ. So that was the attraction of Mark's. That's one of the great things about some of those old toys is that they just never give up. And in a way that some of the more modern stuff just doesn't stand up to the abuse. Not indeed, indeed. I tell you, yeah. something else doesn't give up. Is that dog of yours? Yes, I know. That I, we've been doing this show for over a year now, and so far he's been quiet. Now, is that actually, Jack or Motion? You've got two of them. That, that was Motion barking. It okay. was, I blame the, well, just general excitement of you being here <laughs> in the studio with us. That was it. Uh, 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 my first train was actually a Hornby Clockwork, HO scale or four millimeter scale. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. I remember getting up really early and building layouts. This is before I started school of course, I would mm-hmm. be building things on the carpet. Probably a lot of carpet fuzz inside that clockwork mechanism. Yeah, they do pick it up, don't they? They do. Yeah. Speaking of picking up, what have we got next? Well, we should remind folks you can find us on Facebook. The best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. And don't go too long between visits to our Flickr gallery, because we're always adding new photos from the guests on our shows. While you're on our website, make sure you check out the links related to our show. You'll find all sorts of information on all facets of the hobby and you can also go back through past episodes as well we keep our most current ones on the website but thanks to the good folks at train life you can go back and check out the whole catalog you'll be able to hear everything that we've ever done indeed with all the links well trevor and i launched the show it was the promise we would seek out the hobby's innovators those who keep model railroading moving forward our next guest easily qualifies here's trevor with chris howard of rail flyer prototype models just how true to life can we make our models In other model-building hobbies, we find that realism is the whole point of the exercise. Consider the military modeler, the builder of armor and aircraft. These folks were using photo-etch long before it became the medium of choice for things like steel running boards on freight cars. But as a group, we hobbyists tend to stick with the tried and true. 
change takes time to take hold. As an example, look at the typical mass-market diesel model in HO. It consists of a plastic shell on a metal frame with a motor mounted centrally on the frame and powering the trucks via two gear towers. The shell is probably a one- or two-piece affair with detailed parts supplied by the factory or by the modeler to customize it for a specific prototype. But what if we built models the way the real locomotive builders do? What if we looked at a diesel not as a complete object, but as a series of components? Frame members, fuel tanks, side frames, cabs, fans, railings, and so on. Could we do an even better job? And could we improve on the mechanism to make it more prototypical? Well, my guest today thinks so, and rather than just gas on about it on a forum, he's done something about it. Christopher Howard is the president of RailFlyer Model Prototypes. We'll have a link to RailFlyer on our website, and I encourage you to give it a look. What you'll find is something akin to the General Motors diesel division catalog reproduced in HO scale. Offering parts in plastic, brass, and photo etch, you'll find many remarkable parts and components to build a contest-quality diesel. Most of the models are of Canadian prototypes, but there's plenty for those who model railroads south of the 49th parallel, too. RailFlyer is even taking an unorthodox but very prototypical approach to the mechanism powering its models, but we'll let Chris explain that. Chris, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Hi, good morning. Now, how did RailFlyer start? Can you give us a bit of a background on how and why you got into this business? Back in uh, 2001 or two, I was flying as a charter pilot in the U.S., and I had a lot of free time in my hands, and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to start uh, modeling again. I was initially interested in tanks and aircraft, and then I happened to stop in a model train store, and I picked up two lifelike SD60s. And that kind of got the wheels turning because I modeled back in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, up to about 12 or 14. My next door neighbor, just two or three houses down the street, was Bob Boudreau. So I'd spend many hours bugging him about questions and such. But what really got the wheels turning was the fact that there's all these very, very cool-looking things being done in other genres. But in model railroading, there's absolutely nothing that enables you to essentially take a locomotive from scratch and make a unique unit number of your choice. 2005, I decided to start producing something, and I designed some Canadian steps and a few decal sets, and then it kind of just went on from there. I retired from flying at the age of 29, started model railroading full-time with RailFlyer in May of 2006, and just started banging out designs. The product line now has grown into well over 300 items. We've got a doubling of our product line in progress right now. We should start seeing some of the new tooling from that show up in the next few months, and that will give us about 90% of our first full kits, which are oriented around the SD40-2W, GP40-2W, and GP38-2W. And I've also started a Spartan Cab series so we can go right into U.S. prototypes and other Canadian models that don't use a wide cab. You know, when I look at your site, I'm not surprised you have hundreds of parts there. It, and it does remind me of the parts and systems that are available for the high-quality armor and aircraft modeling hobbies. Now, you mentioned you did a little bit of work in that before you got into trains. I guess that's what really inspired you to take this approach, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the bad thing I'll come clean is I've probably built and finished maybe two models in my life. But having a multimedia approach just does wonders. All of our products, we really, really push the envelope of what is possible for tooling and as far as photo etch. We rely on a lot of multimedia to essentially make the right material match what we're trying to replicate. For example, if you're trying to replicate a step well, which has a very thin cross section, but you need it to be strong, photo etch is the way to go. If you're trying to replicate something like a jack pad, which is three-dimensional, you have to do it in plastic. 
so what I try to do is tailor the right process to the part that we're trying to replicate. One of the things I also noticed on your website is you provide build lists to help customers figure out what they need. I think that's a great idea, and that's something that other manufacturers should consider. But can you explain why you do this? Are you trying to take some of the trepidation out of the purchase process because this is so unorthodox for the railway modeler? Exactly. Part of our sales model is to basically engage the end user. What we try to do is we try to build everything on a 90-10 concept. So 90% of the locomotive that's come across the fleet goes into quote-unquote hard tooling. Whatever changes goes into soft tooling. And the problem with doing that is you end up with a huge category of applicable parts. To make it easier for the end user, we post these build lists to say, hey, if you want to model this unit with this series, this road number, these are the applicable parts. Because what most people don't understand is you can have six SD40-2s in a line, all from the same railway, and spotting features like steps, jack pads, et cetera, will all change. You started with Canadian prototypes. Uh, of course, we are talking diesel locomotives. So as you just mentioned, there's a lot of stuff that's common across any General Motors product, I guess. But it's good to hear that you're adding things like the Spartan cabs so that people in the United States who are modeling uh, U.S. roads can take advantage of this as well. What's your eventual goal here? Is it to basically replicate the EMD catalog? Or I've started the company in the mindset that we're actually a locomotive manufacturer. We're not a detailed parts supplier. The amount of research and development that we're doing is horrendous. We've been in business now for six years, and I've got thousands of parts designed ready to go into tooling. The biggest issue, if you're trying to come out as a detailed parts manufacturer in today's world, nobody wants to buy this stuff. You can't make any money selling detailed parts, but you can make enough money to prove to lenders that you have a viable business plan. And that's kind of the approach I've taken to it. It's going to take us a long time to get all the R&D done because what I'm trying to accomplish with Railflyer is it's a long-term process. We're doing steel tooling, which lasts for 20 years. We're trying to build up a catalog that will take us a longer period of time to get the first full kits out. However, once we get the first full kits out, by doing simple tooling changes, adding a new part here or there, we can produce hundreds of models in an extremely short period of time, and it's now cost-effective for us to do that because with the modular nature, we're not spending $100,000, dollars to set up a new locomotive line. We're spending maybe five dollars or $10,000. You keep mentioning when you get that first full kit out. What's your projection for actually moving beyond that perception of being a detail part manufacturer to being a full locomotive kit manufacturer? We, we have essentially about 90% in progress, which is either here ready to ship or it's in tooling. Once everything's released, including our drive, we will have 90% of the locomotive for those first few wide cabs ready to go. And then everything additional to that is just detail parts, which will basically tool as sales come in. Now, one of the most interesting parts that you offer, and you've touched on it a couple of times here, is the HO scale axle-mounted working traction motors. I'm sure that this is something that many modelers will find uses for, not just people who are modeling in HO scale doing Canadian diesels. Obviously, people doing American prototypes and HO scale will find them useful. Probably even people who are just looking for a really tiny motor for whatever their project is are going to look at these things and say, hey, that's really neat. But in terms of the diesels, this is a very prototypical approach, but it is a real departure from how models have been built. Why did you decide to go this route instead of the standard big motor in the middle and a couple of gear towers on the end? If we decide to put a standard type gear tower in it, it was going to cause two issues. The first issue was it was going to interfere with the draft gear. 
so to mitigate that risk would essentially remove the gear tower so it doesn't power the number one and six axle. The next issue was if you put a standard gear tower in there, under most conditions on an SD40-2 base, you would have the gear tower protrude past the long hood. Instead of going with a compromise, we decided to stick to scale accuracy. So we have the only scale frame in existence for the SD40-2, and we also now have the only scale drive in existence in HO scale. It was quite a challenge. Initially, I had thought we would use brushless DC motors, kind of mount them above the truck. That was still a viable option. However, I did come across some motors that were six millimeters outer diameter, and you can get them as low as 10 millimeters in length. Ours is a custom solution. We shaved a little bit off that. We ended up getting a lot of help from a few guys in the UK who have actually used this type of drive for the past 15 years. So basically what we did is we kind of took their ideas, our ideas, and merged the two, and we came up with what we have now. And it works extremely well. What sort of model returns to RailFlyer? Who's your typical customer? It sounds like it's going to be a military modeler who has decided that trains are his thing. Is that a fair assessment? Our customer is essentially the guy who really wants to be different from what other people are doing. The biggest issue I see with model railroading is there's so much groupthink. Everybody wants to be part of the group and they all think like a group. Our product targets the person who's kind of tired of that and wants to be an individual and produce something that you know they can take ownership in. We're not aiming for the person who wants to have 100 to 500 locomotives. We're aiming for a person who wants 6 to 20. They're all to a high caliber and is interested in prototypical operations. So we've talked for uh, quite a while here. It's been great having you on the show, Chris. Thanks for joining us and telling us about RailFlyer. Sure, no problem. Trevor, I'd have to say Chris is really on to something. This will have him buzzing at the RPM meets, and uh, let's hope this idea spreads to other scales. If anybody's interested in this, by all means, go and take a look at his website, join up on his forum, and if you're interested at all, buy some pieces from him. He'd really appreciate it. And even if you're in other scales, his website's a pretty good reference for how to build the diesel model that you want. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. he's got the, he's got the uh, catalog parts list. And I think it's really interesting that once he has one locomotive done, it's just a matter of changing details, kind of like we do when we're kit bashing to, to do other locomotives. So all the best to Chris. If you're on the web anyway, then check out our site and by all means, go to our what? online shop. I actually had someone get in touch with me, uh, one of our former guests. He said, you know, the only thing that's missing is we need a shirt that says, I was interviewed on the Model Railway Show. So he wants us to work on that. I'll talk to Otto about that and see what he thinks. Cool idea. Yeah. Well, our thanks to Keith Wills and Chris Howard for being with us this time out. And our thanks to you for listening. Next time out, Jerry Leone will describe his journey on the way to becoming a master model railroader. And Gavin Sowery will join us all the way from New Zealand to tell us about a traveling tribute to micro-layout guru, the late Carl Arndt. Chris Abbott is our technical director. Otto Vondrack keeps our website mended and pressed, and the catchy theme comes to you by way of Dave Woodhead. Be sure to check out Dave's website for more of his great music. On behalf of these guys and my co-host Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for listening to The Model Railway Show. Show.